0: But it's something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program on CITR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM cjsf.ca I'm your host Andy Longhurst for the next hour I'm back from San Francisco and New York City with lots of great critical urban content um, to come to you over these next couple weeks and in uh, on this uh, edition of the city I speak with uh, New York City-based the project for public spaces um, founder and president fred kent about public space in new york city um, and cities across the world and a number of other issues related to public space so that full-length discussion um, on the show today and uh, much more stay tuned Sounds from New York City that was uh, the Williamsburg Bridge uh, connecting uh, Manhattan to Brooklyn, and uh, certainly um, some sounds you don't hear um, in Vancouver or um, unique sounds to New York City, I should say. Um, You hear lots and lots of traffic, um, but also the sound of um, subway trains crossing the bridge. Um, So, certainly. Uh, different sounds, and something that is always interesting to listen for is um, how, do di- how do cities sound and New York City um, certainly had a lot of a lot of sound um, and a lot of noise and a lot of um, ambient sounds that uh, were very distinct, and I think a lot of it has to do with a city of that size. You just hear so much more, and in some ways you 're so overwhelmed um, by all of this um, uh, all of this all of these sounds and all of these conversations, and uh, quite interesting um, San Francisco as well, uh, certainly different, but I would say um, in terms of the auditory experience was more um, more akin to Vancouver so uh, certainly interesting to hear, and um, again, as I said, over the next couple of weeks, a um, number of interviews and a number, uh, lots of content about um, my trip uh, to. San Francisco and New York City uh, did some reporting there um, and will bring a number of interviews um, as well as um, highlights um, from those trips and and thoughts and reflections about um, how Vancouver is different and, and compared to these cities and what we can learn from them or things that we're perhaps already doing that we should be um, proud of. So, and on this uh, edition, uh, I'm going to be talking with Fred Kent. Um, he is the founder and president of the project for public spaces and Um, This organization, um, uh, known as PPS, um, is a nonprofit planning, design, and educational organization dedicated to helping people create and sustain public spaces that build stronger communities. And their pioneering placemaking approach helps citizens transform their public spaces into vital places that highlight local assets, spur rejuvenation, and serve common needs. So I talked um, at length with Fred Kent um, about uh, his background as well as um, a number of issues around uh, public spaces and um, also really tried to unpack um, some of issues around public space and really asking the question, who is public space for um, and who benefits from it and are there people that are excluded from it? And this is something on the city that um, I, I think is is really important because when we think of parks and we think of public space, um, I, I think we need to also think about larger processes um, that that uh, take place around these spaces. How are they policed? Um, is it uh, are certain norms acceptable and and certain things are not? Um, who is welcome and who is not? Is everyone welcome? Are these spaces um, for uh, wealthier people? Um, are they policed differently based on class or race? Um, and certainly in New York City, um, you see very sharp um, racial divisions in that city and something, uh, interestingly, that I don't think um, people talk about as much as you would think they they perhaps should. So there's a lot, lot to be said about that and um, had a great discussion, and Fred Kent uh, was very generous with his time. Um, so we unpacked some of these things and um, really tried to challenge some of uh, the ideas and um, looked at a number of different... Um, a number of different angles that we can and lenses that we can look at public space and parks and squares and all of these things that really um, do contribute to a very vibrant urban space, but um, how are other processes and other issues related to that? so um, we're going to take a quick music break um, with some music um, from new york city's uh, The Strokes, um, but then after that we're going to go into the first part of my interview with Fred Kent. And this is The City on CATR 101.9 FM, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. Thanks so much for tuning in, and stay with us. little bit about um, how you came to be involved in the um, PPS and how it was formed Um, (laughs) Yeah, uh, my name is Fred
1: Kent, I guess you need that my name is Fred (laughs) Kent uh, and I've been uh, working at PPS since I started it 37 years ago so uh, it was always it was a dream of mine to be able to do something that was about Public spaces. I had organized a street academy for high school dropouts, and I'd organized Earth Day in New York City in 1970. And uh, it was those kind of experiences that got me realizing that there was something about communities and cities that really uh, and that had to be understood better than what we had been doing. The environmental movement was more about science and law, and but there wasn't there was a kind of a social movement going on with Jane Jacobs and. Holly White and uh, a bunch of other people that were kind of looking at the sociology or the uh, anthropology of cities. And uh, I studied with Margaret Mead and I uh, worked with Holly White, William White, who was a a major figure. Uh, Jane Jacobs uh, were all part of this kind of uh, renaissance of thinking about human activity and people in cities and Jane Jacobs was at a kind of more macro level and looking at economics and uh, the big idea of eyes on the street. And Holly White was looking at the street corner, uh, and Jane Jacobs uh, was a powerful figure, and Holly White was a powerful figure. They worked together at uh, Fortune magazine, and he got her to write the book, the Death and Life of Great American Cities. He did a book on uh, on sprawl uh, with, and she was one of the people who wrote an article in that. So. There was a a very small nexus at that time uh, of pretty amazing people. Uh, But that kind of uh, faded uh, uh, after the 1970s when uh, the politics got uh, really very different and uh, there wasn't that kind of energy in the United States. It sort of went over to Europe and some other places. But um, what's really exciting, I think, is that Somehow we've been able to persist, and now it's becoming a major agenda all over the world, the idea of the sort of sociology of public spaces, the life of the street, the anthropology, the environmental psychology, the, uh, the activation movements that are going on. It's just it's an amazingly fantastic time.
0: Can you speak specifically about that time um, you were part of Mayor Lindsay's New York... Yeah. Uh, Mayor Lindsay's Council on uh, the Environment, and that was a real pivotal point in the environmental movement. Can you talk specifically about that period of your life? Well, it was really, what was interesting is I was grasping
1: for a way of understanding the human ecosystem, or the city ecosystem, the urban community place. All these words are words that were things that we were kind of looking at so after I organized Earth Day and then I worked with the mayor's Council on the environment I started to go back to graduate school and it was in graduate school and also working with Holly White at that time that's where this was all kind of manifested and um, you know it wasn't just it wasn't just me but it was me struggling to figure out and then uh, working with Holly White, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and family fund, Gave us me some money to set this thing up, which I really didn't know what it was. And so, out of that struggle, I mean, you really you don't have much money. Uh, you know, you're trying to do something, but you don't know what it is exactly. It didn't have a name. We we didn't know to call it placemaking, or you know, it was really kind of urban sociology. Uh, and we started looking at things like benches and street corners and. How people walked by stores and how they used parks—you know—all these things that were were just uh, the beginning, the nascent period of of really understanding something much deeper, which is the whole sense of happiness and soci and uh, sociability, the comfort, the uh, how people feel connected, how they uh, feel like they have the value in a community. It was a lot about crime issues, about creating places that people were that were crime-free or that we added uses that would uh, get rid of crime, like at Bryant Park. You know, there were nine groups of people. There were probably 30 people dealing in drugs at Bryant Park. It sounds amazing. But there were not nine people. There were nine groups of people dealing in drugs at Bryant Park. Times Square was just a pit. And the worst place of all was the Port Authority bus terminal, uh, which was just a, a hellhole. uh, But we used this kind of nascent uh, placemaking, adding activity, creating uh, reasons for people to be in places in those very, very desolate, difficult places. Uh, And they turned around. And uh, out of that came this this agenda uh, of creating place. Uh, that has never really found itself in an academic world because it was more intuitive, it was more uh, organic, and it was hard to to kind of uh, academize it. Uh, although Jane Jacobs, I mean, I don't mean Jane Jacobs, but Margaret Mead was someone who was who always had this idea that it was that that academia was more intuitive and and more natural, not not highly quantitative. and and uh, so she was always a, a woman of amazing wisdom. And,
0: sa- and same with Jane Jacobs. You touched on a number of things um, that I want to come back to. But first, um, how do you explain what public space is?
1: Well, we've always thought public space is anything except for someone's home or office. So it's, it's in a retail store. Uh, it's uh, obviously on the street. And, and even when you look at a street, you, in a way, we lost the street, the roadway, as a public space to the traffic community, and we say that's part of the public space. So we're we're not we don't buy that line that the traffic engineers own the roadway. We buy the line that that is a community space. It's a public space, and so everything is a public space except for someone's home or office. So that's inside, outside. It's in a in, it's in a museum. It's wherever. Wherever you want, And and then we have this phrase that we've used recently, is we need to turn everything upside down to get it right side up, and then to get from inadequate to extraordinary. So those are the kind of, uh, our agenda now is a very strong agenda around turning everything upside down. And that includes the architecture profession, the transportation profession, the planning profession. Every discipline has become siloed. They've defined their own their agendas around their own uh, group, group objectives. We, we would say that each discipline has become its own audience, and the audience is not including the, the community and the people in community. And so they have narrowed, they have defined their, their agendas around their own purpose, and that's not appropriate.
0: Can you talk about what placemaking is? And you have a number of organizing principles yeah. that you work with um, can you touch on some of those? Placemaking is the most powerful idea
1: that has happened in terms of the growth of communities anywhere. And for a, it, it's actually a natural organic process that goes on that people who feel they have uh, live in a community, they have a need to help shape their community, that's what they've been doing for centuries. Since time eternal, it was, it's, and it's something that gets stifled or uh, not allowed to happen when the professions come in and determine outcomes. So, placemaking is an intensely human activity. It's, it's powerful for individuals in a community to become involved in creating the place for themselves. It is really about. Their wishes, their aspirations, it is not about professionals coming in and doing it to you. And that is turning it upside down. That's the power of it. It's a very, very big idea. And uh, it's fun to watch people come alive and realize how much value and wisdom they have in helping to figure out what their own place can become. And that's what we do. We go into places. We probably are working in 50 projects at any one time and uh, it's the people that are we're setting the people up to lead and when they lead uh, it's amazing what can
0: happen Um, so it's it's a powerful powerful idea I want to turn to you mentioned um, a a lot of a lot of the history of urban space has been tied directly with um, and more broadly um, the urban experience um, one by Um, disinvestment in the city um, white flight um, not so much in Canadian cities Mm. but has been um, was common in a lot of American cities um, and then what we see now as um, a reinvestment in urban space so we see these transformations um, and along very divided class lines how 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 does race and class play into into public space? Uh, I just was in Aspen
1: at an Ideas Festival, and there was lots of discussion about class and race. And um, there's been a, a a big movement to to uh, use money to value everything, and uh, and that has precipitated a, a separation. And, and, and an acceleration of the difference between different classes, because if you can pay money to uh, uh, a premium to uh, pay to use a toll road, you know that's beginning to separate. And there are many, many ideas like that where money now buys uh, separation. And uh, and but public spaces, if they're done right, creates the integration. And so the idea of the civic square, the multi-use destination, the museum that turns itself inside out so that it's as much public inside as it is outside, but it's all about a museum, a school that is a community gathering place for the community, not just isolated in its own building. You know, that's the... And that's what people want. And people are moving back into cities because they want that, the publicness. They want the, the integration. They want to be with different cultures. They don't want to be... Um, in a garage in the suburbs, uh, it is a bad thing to say, but creating bombs. I mean, it's, I, I just think the suburbs are so isolating, and 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 it just gets you angry to be in a place like that because you don't, you're not around anything that's not creative. Uh, so I think that in the suburbs there are kind of clusterings going on too, and in rural communities there are clusterings. So. I think that the more you have these gathering places where people come together and the institutions aren't siloed and isolated, that they are integrated. You can have a transformation at any level in any kind of a community, and I think that's what everyone wants.
0: Do you have concerns, uh, this is going towards uh, a Neil Smith or a a David Harvey critique of the aestheticization of urban space and the way that um, perhaps inadvertently it leads to... It sets in motion processes of gentrification. Um, how, um, I guess, first of all, um, is that a concern? Yeah. Um, and secondly, how is that addressed? Because public space is wonderful, and I think it's it's not hard anymore to get people on side with that. Um, at least I would hope. Um, but but in many ways, it it could play right into the idea of a neoliberal city that's highly uh, stratified socially. And I think in New York, yeah. you see that to a great extent. And in, in Vancouver, where I come, um, the inner city is becoming the, the bastion of the rich, those who can afford those inner city amenities and those parks and those public spaces. So it's a huge issue. And how, does, yeah. how, do, you, how do you negotiate that? Well,
1: one, one thing comes to mind is uh, we have a, a small... House in Brooklyn, and uh, we learned the history of that house is that there were, uh, in terms of feet, it was 25 feet long and 11 feet wide and three stories. So I don't know what that is uh, in, in uh, meters, but is that is? It, do you need to translate that? Wrong? No, no, that's, no, it's okay. That's good. So anyway, with that, with that, and there were six rooms on three floors, and in each room there was a family. And they had an outhouse and maybe it was a toilet in the, in the lower level. So maybe there were five rooms and five families in 10 by 10 rooms. Mm-hmm. So then I think everyone exploded and went out to the suburbs and they had 1,000, 5,000 square feet for a home, whatever it is, just way beyond anything necessary. And now I think people are coming back in and to cities and they, don't, they need more public space and less room in their home. And that's probably a much better balance because if you don't spend a lot of time in your home, why do you need a lot of space? Mm-hmm. So I think the, the, the average amount of space that an individual has as they come back into the city is probably dramatically less. Uh, but the other side of this issue, which is something that we're really concerned about, is that there are these design disciplines that are kind of trying to create objects out of the public spaces. And that's privatizing. That's a form of privatization because if you are a uh, Latino and you want to come in and use a space that's won a design award because it has all the right shapes and forms, that's not really a public space. That's that's a, a an aberration. Uh, and there's a there's a, a field called landscape urbanism and that is off on a track that has nothing to do with people, and it's really disturbing. (laughs) And it's really about the genius of the designer, and we would say that the genius of the community is infinitely greater than any Mm -hmm. designer because they're more interested in what their own needs are, not in some design statement. So you get this big aberration that's going on and the lack of connection from professional community to the real diverse communities that people want to be in. They don't want to be isolated. They don't want to be in their own culture. They want to be around uh, in markets. One of the best places, if you're you're here, is the DeKalb Market in Brooklyn. And uh, it is absolutely one of the great cultural places, although there's no uh, cultural institution there, because it's local music produced locally by people, you know, that aren't in institutions but are just in the community and you feel like you're in a cultural center of great energy, and you should go and, and, and interview the guy who does it. It's fantastic. Um, so we're in this, I think, this uh, cauldron of where what people want is not really being permitted until they get out of jail. I mean, there's a, there's the, the professions want to keep people in their, under their control, and the community wants to get out of jail. And gradually the community realizes it has authority. And that's where the activism has come in all around the world. Uh, uh, I think it's the uh, Occupy movement, in a way, is part of that. There's just so many wonderful uh, uh, events that are going on, the bike people. It's just such an exciting time. It's just like uh, the world is coming alive again.
0: Is space inherently
1: political? Uh, it, is, it is absolutely political because. Uh, the more organic, dynamic space allows the greatest uh, level of political interaction, mm-hmm. social interaction. Uh, but if you're controlling that, and you're afraid of it, it's a form of, uh, of uh, control
0: and uh, yeah. and uh, uh, repression. How does surveillance play into this? And here in New York City, um, maybe next to London and the amount of surveillance. Um, you're actually, you probably know better if that's correct or not, but the extent to which public space is surveilled. Um, well, uh, that, yeah.
1: there's a kind of corporate world and when you get into, say, midtown New York, uh, everything is under control. Mm-hmm. There's these cameras and there are these, There's we have more uh, security people now than we did 30 years ago when we had three times as much crime. Mm -hmm. So there's this this whole security industrial complex, and they have to keep developing ways to make sure people are under control and that nothing dangerous is gonna happen. But when you live outside that small little world in Brooklyn and Bronx and other cities where there is a kind of natural organic process, in Toronto there's Dufferin Grove Park, which is just alive with activity, and, and the police police don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. They don't have any control. They can't control it because the community controls it. Uh, it's a perfect one to go and talk to. Well, let you know, you go to Vancouver. And Vancouver is a kind of a scary city in many ways because uh, there is so much fear uh, of who uses space spaces. And uh, a place like Granville Island is just alive with. You know, it's a mecca of openness and, and, and engagement and excitement. But how many other places are there in, in Vancouver? Um, not, they're not enough. Uh, so Vancouver hasn't gotten... You know, it's sort of like you, uh, you want to grasp the idea that being open and, and, and engaged with people and allowing people to do things that are in the public realm and then helping them to work better. That's an agenda that is not very common. Well, I, and I,
0: I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and we have um, Pioneer Courthouse Square right. there. And looking at Vancouver, uh, Vancouver really lacks a large gathering right. space. Yeah. Um, like we have in New York, we have in Vancouver, we have in Toronto, um, Montreal, yeah. um, Cairo, Trier Square. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's, this, what's, what's the importance of a public space of that scale well it's
1: you know what people this is maybe going to be harsh on some people but we always think that parks are the answer for cities <laughs> and if you take the example of Duffin Grove Park uh, it's a park but it turned into a great dynamic community gathering place a multi-use place oh Pioneer Courthouse Square is the town square for the city uh, there, aren't, there aren't enough of those it's, it's rare, and there are some new spaces that are over-designed that really don't allow that kind of natural organic energy. And even Pioneer Courthouse Square is not a great design because there are areas of, that are pretty weak where there isn't that opportunity to gather. But uh, uh, we're working in Toronto in college, uh, uh, college Park, which is the center of a large office residential area, and we're going to create a great square there. So as cities become more open, the idea of a square becomes much more appropriate. Mm-hmm. But if you're just looking for some kind of a park, like uh, in Toronto, the waterfront parks are terrible. Mm-hmm. They're just designed not to be used, uh, and that's really a shame, uh, out of fear. And that's where they, they hire the design professionals who will create places that are more objects than they are available for large, large public use. So. Mm-hmm. There's a a very serious disconnect between communities and the professions um, right now.
0: about bikes. Everything? Perfect. Nothing at all? Even better. At the UBC Bike Kitchen, you can use our space and tools to do your own bike maintenance, get one-on-one instruction on how to fix your bike yourself, or drop your bike off for us to repair. You can also buy a fully refurbished, guaranteed used bicycle, or a variety of new and used parts and accessories. The Bike Kitchen is UBC's non-profit, student-owned, full-service bike shop. We're located in the basement of the Student Union building. Just look for the stairwell on the north side of the sub across from Gage Towers, or search for the UBC Bike Kitchen on Facebook. Stop by the Bike Kitchen and then get riding. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint
1: that makes all places the same to you.
0: Anta Cecilia Point to lead Senat for Musqueam. My name is Cecilia Point. I'm a member of the Musqueam First Nation. Uh, the Musqueam Nation is holding vigil at the corner of Southwest Marine and Hudson, and we're protecting our ancestral burial grounds, which have been approved for development. So, if you'd like to come down and join us, we will be here 24 hours a day until we receive justice. You can bring food or coffee or bring flowers for our ancestors. If you'd like to donate food, call 604-649-5556. And otherwise, just come down and and spend some time with us and hold up the sign and show your support. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Haychika. And this is the city on CITR 101.9 FM, streaming online at CITR.ca and also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, streaming on CJSF at CJSF.ca. And uh, you can check out more about the program um, on the website at thecityfm.org. Again, that's thecityfm.org. And also on Facebook and Twitter. Um, follow us on Twitter with the handle, the city underscore FM, and you can do a search on Facebook and find the city there as well. Um, leave your comments, suggestions, um, all of it is, uh, wonderfully helpful in, in looking at, uh, future content for the program and really, uh, exploring issues that you're interested about. Um, and that was, uh, before we took a break, um... We heard uh, from Fred Kent. Um, I was talking with him um, this past week in New York City. Um, He's the founder and president of the Project for Public Spaces based out of New York City. And uh, in the first part, we were talking about the organization, what they do, um, just generally about public space. Um, And in part two, um, right now, we're going to talk um, more about um, public space and um, if it is um, accessible to everyone um, based on um, race, based on ethnicity, based on class and how these play into it. We touched on this a little bit in the first part, um, but whether public space is implicated in processes of um, class stratification in cities. And increasingly, um, we are seeing our cities more and more unequal spatially. So we see, um, particularly in places like Vancouver, um, we have um, plenty of empirical evidence um, to to say that um, the the poor are essentially being pushed out to the suburbs, and so we're seeing the inner city becoming increasingly wealthy. Um, not to say we don't have um, pockets of of uh, middle class, working class, and and uh, poor people living in the inner city, but um, increasingly we see the inner city um, being revalorized. It's being increasingly um, looked at as something that. Uh, you know, wealthier um, residents want to live. And so this has implications And these processes. Um, the gentrification is the class transformation of city space, of urban space. And um, public space certainly um, needs to see how it, how it is part of this larger process. Um, and that's something that I asked um, uh, Fred Kent to talk about and um i certainly coming from a more critical perspective um I would say that i i to some extent disagree um with his interpretation of how it it contributes to the aestheticization or um the um, basically making the inner city more attractive and and creating um a more beautiful and not to say this is bad, but in many ways it leads to a transformation along class lines. And so this has, this has implications and how do we work to counteract that? And, um, there are a number of things. So without any further ado or any further discussion, um, I want to give Fred Kent the opportunity to speak on this and some of the questions that I asked him on these issues. So, uh, this is part two, uh, with my discussion on, uh, on uh, Public Space with Fred Kent of um, the Project for Public Spaces. And this is the city on CATR 101.9 FM, syndicated on CJSF 90.1. Can I ask you to comment specifically uh, just on your thoughts about the conflict over Thompson, uh, Tompkins Square Park, excuse me, um, and the anti-gentrification movement in New York, if you feel that you can, and then secondly, also on um, on Zuccotti Park and oh, yeah. Occupy. Well, gentrification,
1: to me, is a natural process that can occur either in a positive way or a negative way. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you find ways for the community that exists in that area, in that neighborhood, to take responsibility and control and ownership then it's a positive thing. And there will not be this outright displacement for people coming in and doing their own thing independent of that community. If it's just a a financial deal where people find brownstones that they want to live in and they come in and get the the rest of the community out because the community doesn't have any foundation there, that's bad gentrification. So the idea of transforming communities from within and then the, the, the values will go up and their value and their assets will go up as part of that. That's a good part. That's a good gentrification.
0: So you're saying, but inherently in in much of the empirical work on gentrification, it is a class transformation, right? Yeah, right. So you're, in any sense, you're still displacing a lower-income community.
1: Well, you, if you're... You're you're going to have some displacement, but less, and especially if people in that community become part of that uh, evolution or that growth, and they be, and their owners or they become owners in that, they have they have the shops and the jobs. Then that's uh, that's a, a form of of gentrification that's a very positive one. But when there's just this sort of outright displacement and people come in and buy all these places and turn them over, and you, you lose, that's not. Any good? It just is another purification. Instead of a, you know a, a, a good, a really good gentrification process can act, add so much vitality to a place for the people within that place and a few other people that can come in. That's that's the ideal form of it. What
0: um, to what extent? A, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of cities now. Are really embracing the language of uh, the creative class and the Richard Florida version of, of urban development and urban design and um, urbanism more generally. Um, do you have thoughts on that?
1: Well, I was with Richard Florida last week, and uh, he really likes what we do mm-hmm. because he uh, easily gravitates towards the idea of place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that he's that comfortable with the idea of the professionals controlling outcomes. So there's a lot of people who talk about the creative class, but it's really not understood as a placemaking agenda for communities to create place. And he does get that. So he's he just doesn't know. There's so many uh, layers. He's sort of at the ten thousand foot level talking about this and we're at the street corner creating it using the creative energy of people mm-hmm. who don't think they have it, but when they are asked to, to perform, they perform beyond anyone's imagination. So that's where we see the energy and he likes it. That's he's mm-hmm. very, very
0: comfortable with that. On just to continue on that, certainly on the left and in, in the Urban geography, community, and planning community. There's a real um, uh, ambivalence um, and distrust of that language because it it inherently plays into uh, sanitization of urban space um, um, in many ways. That parts of New York, and you look at Soho, or you look at other parts of the city that have dramatically changed. You know, in the past thirty, even the last ten years. Um, is it a language that just allows cities to play into an urban development, um, urban growth machine that that benefits yeah. developers?
1: Well, we we uh, we really were absolutely uh, adamant that placemaking creates chaos. Mm-hmm. That's comfortable for people mm-hmm. at all levels, and we watch that shape itself. That's where that's a powerful antidote to that kind of sterilization. Uh, It's really the high design world that's doing that sterilization, where they organize everything so that it's perfectly understandable and boring. And what people naturally uh, respond to is dynamic environments where they can get at many levels different senses of what it's about. That's where they want to be, and that's where they go. It isn't these uh, these uh, types of settings that win design awards it's not the iconic architecture that's all about look but don't touch not about come and be part of this and and have fun here and do what will make you happy and be comfortable that's not a that's not an agenda that uh, is part of the the, the design world today, Uh, it is the community world, that's what they want like if the community were involved in doing the highline, you would have far more things to do on the highline But the designers who did the highline didn't really want much to happen on there because they wanted to show their design intelligence. Uh, And it's interesting to walk along, but you don't see many places to stop or many things to do. Uh, It's more of a promenade than it is uh, an engaging process. And it's mostly
0: for tourists. I'll uh, wrap up here. Um, But I want to ask you um, first, um, what from your vantage point, what's the future um, of urbanism um, within New York and the direction that the city is headed? Um, and then more broadly, if you can speak to the trajectory of of the urban the urban condition um, across the world. Well, uh, and as we, we play, see, over fifty percent yeah. of of global population now in cities, it's certainly a pivotal time. Well, urbanism, I think, is
1: a... um, isn't a word we should use, only because it's scary to some people. Urban is scary. It it raises all kinds of red flags. Community, neighborhood, sense of place, um, markets. There's a whole range of things that go on in cities that are about urban being... they're urban. I love the word urban, but using the word uh, takes a lot of people out of the discussion. Mm -hmm. It's really... it's unfortunate. Um, What's their their ambivalence, I guess? Well, their fear. Urban and fear are closely associated Mm -hmm. with it. Instead of urban... instead of community and and well-being. Mm -hmm. Those are very two distinctly different words. And a city is made up of neighborhoods and communities. We live in a neighborhood. And we don't really know the next neighborhood over in Brooklyn very well. We know our neighborhood very well. And that's a community. And that's safe and comfortable and exciting to be in. And it's uh, it's awesome what goes on in, those, in these different communities that make up Brooklyn. Brooklyn is a series of small towns. So when you get to the small town level, you know, the word urban is a you wouldn't use it we live in an urban neighborhood mm-hmm. we do mm-hmm. but we live in a wonderful Brooklyn community mm-hmm. that's that's how we would use the language mm-hmm. well I can live in a, in a rural town and have the same kind of experience right. in a good rural town is that urban yeah it is but if you use the word urban to a rural person they think you someone said that that means you're talking like about. Uh, Tuna or something from the Midwest, I and mean, it has nothing to do with your own experience or your own feelings about a place. So that's that's one issue that we have to take language that has uh, different uh, connotations to it, and then out and then language that has outcomes like transit-oriented development or uh, smart growth. These are great, great objectives but if you go in and we're going to say to a community we're going to do a transit oriented development in your community okay. what are they thinking we're going to get some development and it's going to be transit instead of we're going to build a community around uh, places that people can get to with transit you know but we're not saying it's high density we're saying it's a community and so you get using language it's it's very uh, disingenuous in a way to use a lot of the language that we use today because we're saying we want those outcomes rather than the community want that outcome and even in better terms than we could ever say we know that from everywhere we work they always want more activity they always want more excitement they always want more diversity they want it to be more dynamic oh and maybe if we add a store of uh, two floors to this it'll help do that then they're on, the, they're, on the right, they're on that page doing what you can't get them to do if you tell them that's what you want them to do
0: Um, And lastly, what, if you can um, boil it down to three of uh, New York City's top achievements in fostering a vibrant um, public space or initiatives in placemaking, what would those be? And these are good ideas for me to do some further follow-up on. Well, the city,
1: the the government, the city government is extremely professional, extremely top-down. They're looking for the big, the big opportunities, the big developments, the big projects. They've never been focused on the neighborhoods or the communities. And what's happened is that because they haven't focused, the neighborhoods and the communities are what have come alive. Brooklyn, 20 years ago and today, is just phenomenally different. There's so much energy.
0: But some people would say it was still alive before white people no, started moving no, in. No, not really. <laughs> not really.
1: I, I was involved in a lot of sort of Grassroots efforts back in the late '60s and '70s, and they were not alive. Those communities were not alive. They were really very depressed places. People wouldn't go outside. They were, uh, you know, there's all these different movements together, found ways for people to come out. You wouldn't go into the parks then. Um, Today, the parks, there's the fear level is dramatically Mm -hmm. reduced. There's a comfort of being level and being around other cultures. Uh, other ages, um, so I think that the big shift has been more of an organic, going back to an organic process of mm-hmm. community uh, mm-hmm. done entirely locally. The, the city government is more about doing a, uh, you know, the, the the High Line, which is okay, mm-hmm. Brooklyn Bridge Park, which is mm-hmm. not a good park. It's not. It doesn't bring a diverse group of people, and it's very narrowly focused on mm-hmm. a small. High income level of people, um, and and other developments that are really more in the development community than they are in the local um, organically growing neighborhoods. Right. So New York is a city of neighborhoods, and that's what has been the, the most incredible transformation of a city. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going on in cities around the world. Maybe not to, to the degree that it is in, in New York. It is in London and mm-hmm. other other cities. And that's where, that's really urban. That's, that's the real urbanism uh, that's happening. This is a call for artists with a community focus and performance artists for site specific installation. Public Dreams is calling emerging, professional, and community artists of all disciplines to submit work that may be showcased as the marketing campaign for Illuminaris 2012. Public Dreams will bring the Illuminaris Lantern Festival back to Trout Lake. For submission guidelines, more information, or to donate, please visit publicdreams.org today.
0: And that concludes this edition of The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, also at CJSF.ca. And if you're tuning in on CITR, we've got Flex Your Head coming up next at 6 o'clock. And if you're tuning in on CJSF.ca, you've got Democracy Now! at 11 o'clock. Thanks so much for tuning in. And again, you can find um, this podcast and past podcasts at thecityfm.org and uh, find us on Facebook as well as Twitter. Um, again, all of that can be found at thecityfm.org. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we've got lots of uh, upcoming content um, in the coming weeks from uh, New York and San Francisco. So uh, lots to come, and uh, we're going to go out um, with a track um, from Immaculate Machine. Um, but you just heard uh, TV on the Radio's uh, DLZ um, from their uh, earlier re- release, um, Dear Science, and they're out of Brooklyn. So, again, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll be having more critical urban discussions um, next week. <laughs>